You're listening to the Christian Civics Podcast, exploring how the gospel empowers us to think, speak, and act differently in the public square. I'm your host, Rick Barry, the co-founder and the executive director of the Center for Christian Civics. In the spring of last year, at the very start of the COVID-19 pandemic, we took a look at how the spread of COVID-19 was affecting the way Christians worked on a range of public issues. Of course, at the time, none of us expected the pandemic to go on for as long as it has. Over the past year, a lot of ministries have had to deal with the fact that a full year of sickness, death, and social distancing has changed their mission field in profound ways. Personally, I want to know how these ministries are doing, and I want to understand what's changed for the people they serve. So we're going to be inviting back some of our favorite guests to give us some updates on how they've been dealing with the pandemic and how it's changed their work moving forward. Our guest this week is Heather Rice Minus, Senior Vice President of Advocacy and Church Mobilization at Prison Fellowship. We're going to jump right into my conversation with Heather as she starts telling me about how prison life has changed because of COVID-19. Then, after the interview, we'll come back for a little more reflection and prayer. In prison, there's not a way to social distance in the way that there is in the outside community to the same extent, right? So a lot has changed for folks in prison. In particular, I'd say one of the biggest changes is the lack of people and volunteers' ability to go in. So for us at Prison Fellowship, it's meant we've had to put a stop um, to a lot of the programming uh, of people coming directly inside, but we've we've been able to get creative nevertheless, and so happy to share a little bit more about that because I think God's doing some really amazing things. But in terms of protocols, yes, absolutely COVID-19 has been spreading. We actually have an interactive map at prisonfellowship.org on our COVID-19 page where we've been tracking the number of reported cases of people with COVID-19 in prisons and the number of deaths, unfortunately. And so that's something we've been really concerned about and raising awareness about and asking criminal justice systems at the state level and at the federal level to consider releasing people who don't need to be incarcerated to home confinement or or other forms of relief so that the spread would not continue. And certainly those working in corrections have been working to make sure that protocols are being taken, sanitation, all those types of things. But a lot of programming has been put to a halt because uh, of COVID-19. And so the world as we know it is super strange, but the world as people in prison know, it is is even maybe perhaps more so. And a lot of people haven't seen their family, their kids for visitation in a very, very long time. You mentioned that you all are tracking the infection rates and the death rates among uh, incarcerated people. Mm-hmm. Like, all other things being equal, how does being incarcerated affect how you can expect COVID to affect your life? Right. Well, because you really have no ability to social distance, you are inside a locked facility and for the people working in corrections, right? Like you're coming in, going out, being in contact with lots of people. And so there is a higher rate of infection happening in prisons. We finally started to see as more and more prisons have been rolling out vaccinations for people working in prison or living in prison. And we've started to see that kind of come down, um, which has been exciting. And 
What are vaccination rates like for people who work in corrections and people who are incarcerated? A lot of states, you know, in terms of their prioritization of different populations, it was interesting to see how that rolled out. Um, Every jurisdiction is different, but we know that most states prioritized people working in corrections as workers who, you know, maybe were the equivalent to healthcare workers um, or nursing home workers, others like that who are at a higher risk. Um, And some states or jurisdictions kept people who are living in prison on the same par as corrections. Some some states uh, made their vaccinations a little bit um, later in the prioritization line. Um, So every state is different. And there are some that I think have done a, a pretty good job of rolling out the vaccine to their incarcerated population pretty quickly. You mentioned that you all have been working with state-level corrections departments to advocate for people who are able to be released to home confinement, to get released to home confinement. But the nature of advocacy work, especially when you're doing it state-by-state, is that obviously some states will do this and some won't. Mm. For people who are not able to be released to home confinement, that has to be stressful at the best of times, but during a pandemic when they are locked in a small space with many, many other people and a disease spreading, that has to compound both the stress and the isolation of incarceration. How are the people your organization ministers to holding up? You know, people are doing the the best they can. And what I will say is we have been really encouraged in some aspects because we have just seen people cling to God during this time. And so we actually just put out a story uh, sharing about how we have a, a a chaplain store where chaplains can order Bibles for, for people who are incarcerated. And we've never seen such demand as there has been during COVID-19 for the Word of God to come into prison. And wow. I think that just speaks to the need for communion and fellowship, even if that's not with brothers and sisters in Christ in the same room that people are asking for God's word to be sent in. So that's been really encouraging. We've done the very best we can to try and keep in touch with our program participants, even where our staff has not had the opportunity to go in. We have had some interesting, you know, virtual uh, programming opportunities to connect with people. Uh, we also have FlickShop. Uh, that's an organization actually founded by a friend of, of, of mine, Marcus. Bullock, just an amazing man who was formerly incarcerated, and it allows you to basically have an app to send a postcard with pictures and, and, and a note to your loved one in prison on a postcard. And, you know, you, you basically can put in the picture and, and note from your phone, and they'll send it off to prison for you, um, making it really easy to, to stay in touch. And so we actually partnered with them at the beginning of the pandemic to give free credits for people to send those postcards to their loved ones. Uh, That was one way we were able to keep in touch with some of our program participants and just encourage them during this time. But it's definitely very hard on families. People are very worried. And getting information about how your loved one is doing, particularly if they are sick, can be incredibly stressful for families. And so how are families and how are the incarcerated dealing with that? What is being compounded by this isolation? When people can't contact their loved one when they're in prison, uh, you can just imagine uh, how hard it is even for us out in the community, right? We're doing the best we can with phone calls and FaceTime, but it's really not quite the same. And visits are already, you know, pretty minimal, even prior to COVID-19 for people. You know, you crave that opportunity to actually see your loved one come and visit you or your child come and visit you. 
So that's been really, really hard. And we have our largest program is Angel Tree, Prison Fellowship's Angel Tree program, which serves children of incarcerated parents. And we do a lot of programming with them, including summer camps and sports camps around this time of year. And last year, a lot of those things were sort of put to a halt. And we were calling and talking to caretakers of the children of the incarcerated that we serve. 50% of our caretakers of Angel Tree children are actually that child's parent who's not incarcerated, right? And they were experiencing a lot of hardship, not only this distance and loneliness and asking for prayer, but also economic hardship as well. And so we actually, we couldn't host kids for summer camps last summer, but we sent uh, Angel Tree sports camp care packages, summer camp care packages to uh, hundreds and hundreds of families. And, you know, we're able to give them a, a sports ball and a gift certificate to a local grocery store. Um, and so we've we've had to pivot and think about how we can still support people during this time, even when our normal course of programming isn't possible. Uh, and so we've, we've been blessed to be able to provide those kinds of resources, though, to our Angel Tree families. I'll be honest, when I think about the like, stress and frustrations and challenges of incarceration, I focus so much on thinking about the day-to-day experience that I tend to not think that much about the stress of not knowing if, for instance, your children are well cared for. Right. That is a form of ministry to people who are incarcerated that caught me by surprise when I learned about it. it. It made perfect sense once you hear about it. Oh, right. Of course, they would want to know that their kids are being taken care of. But it is thoughtful and creative in a way that's really encouraging. But you had mentioned earlier that you've had to get more creative because of COVID. How else have you all had to adapt over the past year? Two points in particular I, I'd love to share. The first one is we actually shortly after COVID-19 shut down the world <laughs> and programming in prisons. And so we weren't able to send volunteers in. We got a call from actually the California uh, Department of Corrections. And they said, would you consider creating digital programming for folks? Because we've got people idle. <laughs> uh, we, we need to bring hope to people. And so that launched what is now called Floodlight. Uh, and we have basically compiled all sorts of content, uh, Christian content, messages of hope, uh, the events that we would normally do inside prisons. We've recorded in a virtual fashion. We've partnered with folks like Alpha and Celebrate Recovery and others to provide digital content on this platform that corrections facilities can actually access and then put up on closed circuit networks inside the prison or if the prison has tablets, which are becoming more and more popular, especially now during COVID-19. And so it started with California, this request from California. We launched it. We've been adding things to it. Uh, We've been trying to actually now model what we share on there after our Prison Fellowship Academy, our in-prison program curriculum model, and the core lessons that we teach. So we're really trying to refine it at this point, and it's here to stay. And now we have it in almost every state across the country. Floodlight oh, wow. is available. So it's just spread the country over the past year, which has been really exciting. And we're able to provide that digital content, even though we're just starting to get the opportunity to go back into some of our facilities Uh, But that's been really wonderful to do that. We've also had more recently in April during Easter, it was a tradition of our founder, the late Chuck Colson, to visit those in prison during Easter. And 
we historically have have hosted some Easter hope events, which are events where we share the message of the gospel and the Easter message with folks, usually have uh, worship of some kind for people behind the walls. It's a really encouraging time. And of course, we were not able to go into many prisons, but we we started proposing a new idea. Could we bring a hope event just outside the walls? So we've actually done several events where we have had our worship performers or others perform just outside the fence of the prison. And people who are incarcerated are able to join us socially distanced in the yard. And we're able to worship together and pray for them and um, speak to them. And so that's been really, really powerful. And finally, I'll also say for Angel Tree, our biggest activity is during Christmas. Churches partner with us to deliver a gift on behalf of the incarcerated parent to their child with a note from that incarcerated parent to their child. And we were still able, despite COVID-19, to serve over 200,000 children because we also pivoted to creating a virtual angel tree option where if you weren't comfortable delivering the gift to the child or that that wasn't possible for your church, you could actually essentially be matched to a child in your local community online. And we would facilitate making sure the gift and offer of the gospel and a gift for that child and a note from their parent was actually sent via mail to that child and delivered to them this year. So because of that, we were able to serve 200,000 children despite COVID-19 by creating this virtual angel tree platform. And and that's something that we also will probably continue doing into the future as well as floodlight. And so the Lord, I think, has used this time for us to get creative and say, you know, these are not just bandage measures in some case. These are things I want you to continue doing. Just to get a sense of the scope, you said you were able to serve 200,000 children and that number like in the last minute, I went through this whole journey where that number sounded enormous to me. But then it raised another question of what percentage of children with incarcerated parents that is. Is that most children in the country whose parents are incarcerated or is that a drop in the bucket or is it somewhere in between? Yeah, unfortunately, uh, it's not most. So we know that there's over 2 million children with a parent who's incarcerated right now. However, that comes down to 1.5 when we're looking at children who have a parent who's incarcerated in prison. And that's who we target to serve for the most part for Angel Tree, just because the in and out of the jail system is is quite quick. So you might sign someone up to do Angel Tree, but they might be home by Christmas. And that's a better present than, than Angel Tree Christmas, of course. So we, we primarily target having incarcerated parents sign up from prison. So there's 1.5 million children estimated to be in that kind of pool of, of, of children that we serve. And prior to COVID, we we were able to serve over 300,000 children. This last year, it was 225. And so our hope this year is to rebuild, to get back up to, to 300,000. And that was primarily due to, it was really hard to get access to the prisons for parents to sign up their children uh, mm. during COVID-19. And then also not as many churches participated, but it was about level with the the signups. And so every child who was signed up, we served last year, which was, was awesome. But we want to continue rebuilding that and growing that so that we're able to reach more children who have an incarcerated parent in prison. Last year, when we talked on the podcast, we spent a good chunk of it diving into the idea of restorative justice and contrasting that against the idea of punitive justice. Like, What is the purpose of the justice system was kind of my big takeaway question from our last interview. You said a year ago that it seemed like we were starting to see the idea of restorative justice gain momentum both among the population and among policymakers, but that it still had a long way to go, that the idea of punitive justice was still very deeply ingrained 
in our penal institutions. How has the pandemic affected that momentum? Is there less momentum for restorative movements since they're so hands-on and interactive and maybe they seem extraneous? Or has the rates of infection among incarcerated populations highlighted the need for restorative movements among people who might have been hesitant about them a year ago? It's a little bit of both. In some ways, the pandemic has forced lawmakers to think about who they incarcerate and are we incarcerating them for public safety reasons, truly, or can we actually handle accountability in a different way? So we have seen some jurisdictions allow for the safe release of folks who do not need to be there or even with how pretrial detention is handled. Uh, There has been sort of more of a willingness in some jurisdictions to do things differently. And I think hopefully just like what I described with getting creative on the program side for prison fellowship and responding to this crisis, states will see the effect of that. And some of those things will hopefully be here to stay in terms of handling things differently. On the other hand, people are often not as well prepared to be released from prisoner jail during this time. Uh, reentry supports are really lacking. There's some reporting out from reentry organizations about how poorly many of them are faring in terms of getting resources out to people and meeting the needs. It's already a difficult time, regardless of COVID-19, to be reentering the community. And there's a lot of barriers that people face. And so, you know, we we certainly um, have seen in certain ju- jurisdictions where crime rates are going up um, in certain cities and things like that. And so that can cause a kind of knee-jerk reaction, if you will, and really for people to take a more punitive approach. You said that a question that's being raised for lawmakers now is, who are we incarcerating and why? Right. Can you give me some any specific stories about how you've seen someone, particularly a policymaker, work through that question in a new way over Mm -hmm. the past year in light of COVID? Relatively early on in the pandemic, we saw, for example, in Kentucky, the governor actually chose to use his executive powers to release over 900 people from their state correction system. And using that executive power for that type of action is is pretty unusual, but he, he understood the risk that these people faced and wanted to ensure that no lives were lost unnecessarily to the pandemic. Another particular story that I think has had an impact on on many lawmakers at the federal level in Congress, a woman by the name of Andrea Highbear was incarcerated in the federal system. She was pregnant and she was transferred from North Dakota, I believe, to Texas for incarceration in the federal system. And she's Native American. And um, in the course of being incarcerated, she contracted COVID-19. And unfortunately, she did not make it, and they were able to save her child, but but she she passed away earlier on in the course of the pandemic. And so that story became one that was highlighted by a lot of the advocate groups that we work with, of course. Uh, I had the opportunity to actually speak to Andrea's grandmother, who now cares for that child, along with the others that she left behind. And that is a story that I think has given members of Congress a lot of pause and and asking questions about who were incarcerating why and just the oversight of of how that case was handled and the measures that the Bureau of Prisons or other facilities are taking. Like one, we've we've got to make sure policymakers are understanding who they're sending there. I mean she had a drug charge. It was not a violent crime that she was incarcerated for. 
And then we also need to make sure that the appropriate oversight is happening and that families are actually given the information they need uh, about their loved ones. It was very tragic to, to talk to Andrea's grandmother and just learn of how little information she was given throughout the process and how suddenly her granddaughter died. She didn't appreciate how serious the complications were until it was too late. When you're kind of thinking through what day-to-day life is like for people who are incarcerated, and obviously this is kind of the whole deal with prison, but you don't often truly appreciate the degree to which they have no agency or control. The Prison Fellowship website describes this really well. You say that people who are incarcerated are one of the most vulnerable groups of people in our society. They're living their life completely by the decisions and whims of other people. But for a lot of people who have not been through the penal system, that's not the first phrase we think of. When we think of people who are incarcerated, we don't tend to jump to immediately thinking of them as vulnerable people. Right. In your experience, what what factors tend to shape the way Americans think about the prison population? You know, I was just giving a talk on the power of redemption. And we know as Christians in our minds— We've been taught from an early age, right, that God created each of us in his image and that no one is beyond God's redemptive reach. But people's poor choices can make us start questioning that belief we know is true. And I think that pesky sin of pride can creep up and start trying to convince us that grace is available to those who have earned it and not available to those who are beyond it. And, you know, when you hear on the nightly news that a young person has hijacked a car or when you hear that your cousin with a drug problem is back in jail and it's the fourth time and this time it's for dealing or when you hear that someone took another innocent person's life, it can challenge that belief in redemption. But yet the gospel invites us in to this incomprehensible understanding of redemption. We talk a lot at Prison Fellowship about Hebrews 13.3, which tells us to remember those in prison as if we were with them in prison. And then it says, and remember those who are mistreated as if you yourselves were mistreated. And I think that's such an interesting juxtaposition because on the one hand, when you hear of those who are mistreated, you think of the oppressed, the vulnerable, the victims, and those are people God calls us to care for and that God wants to restore. But yet the verse starts with remember those in prison. Those who are almost always there for something in their own culpability is what's brought them there, right? And we're also called to remember that God can redeem them, that they're made in God's image too. That's the incomprehensible nature of the gospel, right? It reaches to both. But I think because people in prison have, for the most part, You know, there are definitely people who are innocent in prison and wrongfully convicted. But for the most part, people are there for something that we're mad at or afraid of. And for that reason, we can kind of think out of sight, out of mind, and have have a lack of understanding that that person's made in the image of God. We can start to chip away at that when we hear the poor choices that someone has made. Right before we started recording, we were talking a little more informally, and you had mentioned the 44,000 legal barriers people face after their sentence has been served. When we talk about remembering those who are mistreated in the context of prison, we have 44,000 ways in which after someone has served their sentence, they are still being punished for it. We're recording this right 
at the start of May, right after what you all call Second Chance Month. Can you talk a little bit more about what it's like for people after their sentence has been served and what you all were doing throughout Second Chance Month? We actually had the opportunity as COVID-19 hit, we were filming uh, a documentary following people released from Prison Fellowships Academy program inside prison, three people to their reentry journey and the barriers they faced, the personal grit it took to overcome some of them. Um, But we just now released that documentary just as the end of Second Chance Month. And I think it really highlights the perseverance that's required. And it also highlights the 44,000 barriers that you mentioned, Rick, that people face. Most of them are connected to employment. So, you know, struggling to get a license to, for example, sometimes we actually teach people how to become a cosmetologist in prison. And then in that same state, they are barred from having a cosmetology license because of their criminal record. Or in California, we worked on legislation to allow people who served as volunteer firefighters while incarcerated, trained that way to fight the wildfires. And then post-release, they can't get the occupational licensing necessary to actually be a firefighter. (laughs) And of course, while incarcerated, we paid them next to nothing for their service. So those are the kinds of barriers folks face. And of course, there's housing barriers, education, access barriers. There is the inability to vote in many jurisdictions if you have a criminal record. And that is all on top of just the general stigma that people face because of having a criminal record. And so what we tried to do in 2017, we launched Celebrating April a Second Chance Month because we believe there are some incredible stories of transformation that we have seen again and again, starting with our founder, Chuck Colson. And we want to highlight those stories and change the narrative about the possibilities of redemption and the God-given potential that people with criminal records have. And we have had churches across the country using our church toolkit to host a second chance Sunday during April to talk about this issue, which has been really exciting. We have had prayer meetings highlighting second chance stories. We had a virtual second chance month gala where Brian Stevenson gave our keynote address and we shared other powerful stories of second chances. And that's the purpose of the month. Uh, We hope also that people will use the documentary following these three individuals who came home as an opportunity to watch that and, and talk about it with their community or their church. And see if there's ways we can support people like that. All right. That was my interview with Heather Rice Minus, Senior Vice President of Advocacy and Church Mobilization at Prison Fellowship. Every time I interact with someone from Prison Fellowship, I always appreciate how they've found so many different ways of following through on what could at first seem like really simple biblical commands. The Bible tells us to remember the prisoners as if we were imprisoned. It tells us that God's reign will be marked by freedom for people who are held captive or freedom for people who are imprisoned. What I like about prison fellowship is the way they don't demand that everyone who remembers prisoners demonstrate that remembrance the same way. They recognize that different parts of the body have different skills and gifts. And they find ways for different parts of the body to use their skills and their gifts most effectively. Just in that short conversation, we talked about how Prison Fellowship is doing advocacy directly with lawmakers and policymakers, how they're providing supplies to chaplains, how they're 
doing direct teaching and evangelism and counseling to people who are incarcerated, how they're providing for the emotional and social needs of people who are in prison, how they're supporting people whose family members are incarcerated through camps and gifts and helping them stay in touch with their loved ones. The I can't say to the I, because you're not an I, I have no use for you, right? But a lot of times in the church, we get so wrapped up in something we're passionate about that we want other people to get in on it with us. We want them to get involved. But only if they get involved in the same way that we're involved. We end up kind of demanding that if people are going to get involved, they have to reshape themselves into our image. They have to prioritize the same issues we do, and they have to come at those issues from the same angle we do. There's only one group of people worth serving at a time, and only one right way to serve them, or only one set of their needs worth meeting at a time. Obviously, we know intellectually that this isn't true, but it's easy to forget. Thankfully, Scripture can remind us. We can read the Old Testament and the New Testament and see how many different forms of brokenness God cares about at the same time. And we can pick any one form of brokenness and count how many different ways God starts trying to heal that brokenness and starts encouraging people to get involved in healing that brokenness at the same time. People are hungry. God sends them manna from heaven. But he also tells us to let those people glean from our farms. He tells us to take another tithe from the people and give that tithe to the needy. He tells us to use better scales when we're selling to the needy at the market. He tells us to ask less of them when they come to make sacrifices and worship, to share our food with them, to bang on a neighbor's door in the middle of the night to feed them if they show up and we don't have bread. Give people who are hungry work and a fair wage. Put a tax on grain, store that grain up, and then when famine hits Egypt, sell that grain back to the people cheap. The list of how to handle that one issue in Scripture goes on and on. This week, let's all set some time aside to think about whether we've made the mistake of forgetting that, whether we've gotten so caught up in one issue or one cause or one movement or one specific response to a particular issue, that we've lost sight of how many problems are actually facing our neighbors at the same time and how complex those problems around us really are, whether we've stopped tolerating people who are equipped to handle different problems than we are or who are equipped to approach the same problem from a different angle than we are. If we need to ask someone else, if we can't figure this out about ourselves, that's okay. Sometimes we have a hard time seeing ourselves. We can ask someone else, someone who knows us well, where am I selling other people short? Where am I forgetting that God's goal is to make all of us look more like him, not make other people look more like me? What are the ways in which I expect people to start thinking and acting more like me before I'm willing to take them seriously? Now let's jump to prayer. Toward the end of our interview, Heather mentioned that the beginning of Hebrews 13 is a big key verse for the team at Prison Fellowship. So we're going to read Hebrews 12, 28 to 13, 6, 
Then we'll come back together to close in prayer. Hebrews 12, 28-13-6 Let us keep our gratitude and in it serve God with piety and fear so that he may be well pleased. For our God is a consuming fire. Let brotherly love abide. Do not forget your hospitality, for through this, some have entertained angels without knowing it. Remember the prisoners as if you were in prison with them, the abused as if you were so in body. Honorable is marriage among all and the undefiled bed, for God condemns lechers and adulterers. Let your living be without avarice, making do with what is on hand, for he himself said, I will never let you go, I will never forsake you, so that we can be confident and say, The Lord is my aid, I shall not fear. What can man do to me? Please pray with me. God, you are the judge of the living and the dead. You see more than we do. You know more than we do. You care about more than we do. And you are wiser, more generous, more patient, and more just than we are. When we want to write someone off, you want to redeem them. And we want to admit to you right now that we know that your desire to redeem is the only reason we get to talk to you. If you judged us the way we judge others, or the way we hope that you will judge others, you would have cut us off from your love, from your mercy, from your grace, and from your glory. We're sorry for the ways in which we resist your call to invest in the people we usually ignore and redeem the lives that we usually write off. We don't care about as many people as you do, and even when we do care about people, we don't care about them the way you do. Thank you for Prison Fellowship's example of what it means to live out Hebrews 12 and 13. For the reminder that serving you with piety means showing brotherly love and hospitality, even to prisoners without greed, and without fear. A lot of times, on a deep level, we believe the lie that there's no way to help others without hurting ourselves, that service and hospitality and generosity are zero-sum. And a lot of times, on a deep level, we believe the lie that getting too close to people who are condemned will stain us and mar us in ways that we can never recover from. We admit that we don't believe that serving others is an investment in your kingdom. When you call us to plant seeds to grow better food, we think you're calling us to throw away the only meal we could ever imagine. Redeem our imaginations. Give us hearts that are more ambitious for your glory to be revealed through the way you redeem the people and tribes and institutions around us. And give us brothers and sisters that spur us on into action, who encourage us to be grateful for the powers and privileges and responsibilities and opportunities 
you've given us as citizens of this country and who help us take every thought about how we approach that citizenship captive for you, even when taking those thoughts captive for you hurts or is scary or shows us things that people without the assurance of your grace would deeply resent or fear. We pray these things in the name of Jesus, who you sent to assure us that you will never let us go and to assure us that we have nothing to fear. Amen. That's it for this week. Thank you to Heather Rice Minus for taking the time to join us. If you go to our website, christiancivics.org, and go to this episode's show notes, you can find a link to the documentary A New Day One, which Heather mentioned toward the end of our interview. I also want to give a big thanks to Lauren Larson for producing our show. The transcript of today's episode, along with the action item and the show notes, is available at christiancivics.org slash podcast. Thank you all very much for listening, and we'll be back next week with more reflections on how the gospel can empower us to think, speak, and act differently in the public square. <laughs>